Mention secession to nearly anyone, and the first thought will be the South seceding from the Union of the United States. Secession is, of course, how this country was created, but that seems overlooked or excused. The reason, in part, in both cases, for secession was self-governance. Today, the U.S. is divided on a variety of lines, including political allegiance. The model of rule of top-down overlord isn't working. Secession seems the best and right course. Since July 4th is coming, and any sense of why that day is celebrated seems destroyed, I'm doing a few episodes that tie in with liberty as I think the founders intended. My guests will discuss how a bloodless and swift secession can fix our pain, and brother, we can use relief from that pain. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 146. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Move your flavor up to smoking this summer with some barbecue and grilled spices from Savory Spice. Buy single spices, rub mixes, or prepared sauces. Check out the selection with my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash bbqspice. My guest today is Mark Kresslins. Mark is a former legislative assistant in Congress to two GOP members of Congress, which gave him a front row seat to the operations of the government. He also co-hosted the Forgotten Men radio show for five years. Mark joins me today to talk about secession. Hello, Mark. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for the invite. I look forward to a lively conversation about uh, politics and food. Well, we can probably <laughs> do both of those things. Uh, Great. Before we start, let's take a minute out to give us a short introduction to you. Yeah, sure. Well, um, you know, I've, I've been involved in politics in one form or another for the last, oh, I don't know, probably since the early 80s. And I served a stint on Capitol Hill uh, for two Republican uh, members of Congress, two so-called um, conservative members of Congress. So I think that term has lost its meaning along the way of, somehow. Um, but I worked for two guys there. That was kind of my first introduction into real major league, if you will, major league uh, politics. And, and, and in that context of being a senior legislative assistant to these two congressman at two different times, um, not simultaneously, I, I came to realize um, how that machine there really works. And it was really, you know, for a long time, Dan, I wondered why, why did I have this opportunity to work there and ended up after they're going into business and running my own physical therapy business and things like that. But I had this kind of unique window of where I was actually on Capitol Hill working in the belly of the beast, if you will. And I would often wonder, what was it for? 
Well, it really was for about the last decade and a half of my life to really begin to make these arguments that the state is inherently evil and an unnecessary part of our lives. So we have been conditioned, like I was, to believe it is an essential characteristic of life. So I have been crusading the last year and a half or so, uh, 10 and a half years, uh, running around the country, speaking at various places, any opportunity I get to communicate this idea that we've been brainwashed. Uh, we don't know we're brainwashed and most people don't know they're brainwashed when that's the very nature of being brainwashed. You don't know you are until there's some kind of an intervention. So I see a good deal of what I do is kind of an, a uh, regular intervention and creating moral and intellectual wedges in people's minds and conflicts, creating these moral conflicts that can only really be reconciled by a real sense of freedom, which equals in, in many ways uh, no no state or no government, if you will. So that kind of gets me to where I am today. And I'm, I'm retired now. I spend more time probably uh, on, in communities of people pushing this than I should. I need. I spent the last two days weeding my garden because <laughs> I let that get away from me. And so, uh, so I'm trying to find a balance between gardening, my lovely bride, my seven grandchildren, and uh, and and cooking food as well. So, well, balance back tonight. Balance there is definitely important, and priorities do matter. I'm going to recommend you find a friend of mine, John Moody's book about weeds. You may find you don't have to work as hard as you think you do because some of what you're taking Absolutely. might be useful for the soil. Um, but that's an aside. Yes. Um, Beautiful. Thank you. I'm, but yeah, you're welcome. I'm invited you on today to talk about secession. Now, mm -hmm. you know, se secession as an idea, that comes with a lot of baggage. And there's at least two sides. There's the legal side. And there's the action side. Um, I want to focus on the action side. The legal side isn't without interest, but it I don't think it leads anywhere. It's, it's, it's worth knowing. It's valuable as a foundation, but it's not exciting. Uh, maybe to the lawyers it is. Uh, the most famous action of secession, of course, is the War of Northern Aggression. Um, but that is, you know, that history lesson aside. Secession really is intended to be peaceful, not what we saw. Um, not peaceful like Minneapolis 2020, but for reals, peaceful mm -hmm. and nonviolent. Yeah. At its heart, I think the it's an idea for self-determination. Now, I know we're yeah. going to talk action, but we have to at least bring up this. The Supreme Court case, Texas versus White, for everybody who thinks they are keyboard constitutional warriors, they always bring the, oh, you can't do it. You can't do it because of this. Because of this. Well, your friend, Brian McClanahan, had an episode about secession and made the interesting point that look at the date of the case, consider what was happening in the country at the time, and they almost had no choice but to say, of course, you can't secede. But, you know. If you accede to a thing, which the states did to grant the federal government its power, if you say yes to a thing, you can say no to a thing. Well, unless you're Tony Soprano, that's a different story. And we could, we could probably <laughs> talk about how the government is yeah. a mafia, but that's probably another yeah. show. So sure. um, yes. the question almost answers itself. But isn't 
preventing war, worth having us worth being able to secede? I mean, that seems idiotic to ask, but let's talk about it. Yeah, well, I think it's, it begins with this false dichotomy that we've been trained to embrace. It's, it's this kind of binary thinking about freedom. And and inevitably, those who want us to stay in the binary, if we try to secede, we're going to start shooting people. And so, therefore, you shouldn't secede and just try to work within this system. That's your two choices. It's work within an existing corrupt system, because if you try to get free, it's going to inevitably end up in a war. However, as we just witnessed, literally in, in, uh, in 2016, uh, Great Britain or the UK seceded peacefully through referendum from the European Union. There's no debate that that was a secession movement. Now, I think it's really it really is important to almost ridicule with a great deal of sarcasm the idea of legal arguments for secession. At a fundamental level, either you believe in the unalienable right, the natural right of self-determination, or you don't, because secession is foundational. That unalienable right is foundational to the concept of secession. That is a political construct, not a legal construct. The second you give ground to a legal framework to understand secession, you've lost. You've already lost because they're going to th they're going to throw Texas v. White at you. They're going to throw Lincolnian pseudo legal language about the perpetual union. They're going to they're going to yeah, exactly. They're going to defend themselves, and and the minute you try to get on their ground and debate it legally, you've already lost because they control all the mechanisms of legal power. And so even if you were able to make an exquisite legal case that there is somehow a constitutional right to secession based on a compact theory and things like that, if they really ever felt threatened, and this is my experience working in Congress, they would just pass a law and then it would get litigated through the appeals court and up to the Supreme Court, and then they would stamp it illegal. And then, you know, so you can't, you have to both mock the legal idea of it to have any success at penetrating people's minds who have been trained to believe secession is a constitutional or quote unquote legal issue. So you have to just rip that apart and say, at the right at the onset, onset, I am defending an unalienable natural right to self-determination. Self and I will go to the mat on that, and I will mock and scorn any politically connected lawyer in a black dress, dress telling me I can't. So I'm going to use terms of derision. I'm going to use terms of ridicule. I'm going to mock the idea that this is a legal construct because I need to create a wedge in people's minds to say, you are born with natural rights. By God, defend them. Don't defend them with some magical, mystical, legal you know, argument or theory you're going to put forward because they'll just counter it. They'll counter it. And if they can't counter it, they'll counter it with force, as we see with Lincoln. Now, I think the problem in our current situation is that we've been so indoctrinated with the Civil War, the war of Northern aggression, the war between the states, however we want to describe it, we inevitably have been trained to believe that's where it's going. Now, who does that benefit? That obviously benefits the sociopaths in Washington, D.C., and the bureaucracy tied to it, and the special interest, and the $4 trillion that goes through it. It benefits them. So why won't they keep up the illusion? Why won't they wink, wink, and say, 
you know, if you guys try this, remember 1860, what happened back then? And you might just want to slow your roll a little bit. Now, the reality is uh, half the military would be in support of secession. So there would be an immediate standoff. We can get into all the technicalities of secession because there actually is a very easy way to seem almost seamlessly break the country up right now without any any uh, form of, of there'd be tension and there'd be struggles, but there would not be any need for shooting, just as we saw over in uh, the United Kingdom. And as far as I can recall, I don't believe Angela Merkel ever said she's going to fly the Luftwaffe and bomb the UK into staying in the European Union. I don't think that was ever a threat that I heard anyways. I never heard anybody saying that. So they were able to, by referendum, vote themselves out of a union, secede from the union. And uh, and that would be essentially the same way I do. So I think we have to begin, uh, Dan, with just destroying the idea that, that secession has anything to do with legality it has it is it is exclusively a political decision made by the people that's it that's why jefferson writes in the declaration that uh, uh governments derive their just powers from the consent of the government and whatever government doesn't do what it's supposed to do which is secure natural rights it is the right for the people to alter, and he goes on later on to say it's the duty, it's the right and the duty of the people to alter, abolish, or throw off. Well, what did they do? They threw off the king. That's their argument. In, in, in writing, right there in the Declaration of Independence, they seceded. They threw off the king. So we are in this same philosophical place. We are a hopelessly, irreconcilably divided uh, country of 320 million people who really are divided amongst along many fault lines, but certainly the red-blue red paradigm can provide us some guidance on, on what the end result might look like. Uh, but then even then, you'd probably end up with further secessions. But that never gets approved by the House, it never gets approved by the Senate, never gets signed by the President, never gets litigated in the courts. It is just the people doing exactly what Jefferson and the founders did on July 4, 1776, declaring independence. And then if you're worried about a threat, well, you got to prepare for the threat. My, my belief in the 21st century, there's no chance um, that there's going to be any kind of retaliatory um, uh, military strike. And if they tried an economic strike, well, now you got Bitcoin, you got cryptocurrency. You can switch over like El Salvador did last week. You could make Bitcoin legal tender and we could buy coffee at Starbucks tomorrow. So they, they really have fewer and fewer threats against us right now. All right. So talk about that seamless separation because we've got, I, I think some of your points, I, I agree with your points. I'm trying to see if we can, I, I think the easy place, the easy point in time to go to is the Lincoln administration where this fundamental shift in thinking from free and independent states to a confederation, a, a, a it's like just this corporation with, you know, sub-monopolies for so long, you looked to be maybe a little older than me, but probably when you went to school, there was, we were, we were given this 
story we were taught that grandpa government story. will take care of you. And yeah. we were never taught. I don't think I was ever taught that there were within years of ratification, Northern states wanted to secede. We never, no one ever told us that. No one ever told us that Northern states had slavery. What? You talking about No, no, no. Yeah. So we already don't have a good picture. Now we, we've, we've, we, I keep using the word we, I don't know how else to get around it. So I read the, the comments. Uh, I, I follow one of my, I follow both of them, but one of my state senators, uh, <laughs> I think his interns are much more prolific than the other ones. And I it's just the, the amount of drivel, the amount of, we need a law for this and all of just the support hundreds and hundreds of likes in favor of another law to do something like what's wrong with you people so there there's the complete misunderstanding of what the legitimate from fu legitimate function of government is like i feel i would admit i brought up the mob i feel like miguel colina i'm a legitimate business there's almost no discernible sense of self-ownership it's all just wait around for someone to take care of me so with having gotten this far and i think we've probably we again i think the country's probably been led deliberately somehow i don't know how to prove that to this point getting off the government teeth is going to be hard and a lot of people won't want to do that mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, there's no shortage of complexities to the idea of getting independent from Washington, D.C. There's a ton of them. There, fortunately, there's answers to every one of them, too. Here, here's the greatest weakness, Dan, that I have come to realize over my years of doing this. The left and the neo-Marxist progressives are extraordinarily skilled at storytelling. They know how to create a narrative about why they should answer the concerns that you have at a personal level, whether it's education, healthcare, it doesn't matter what the issue is. They know how to tell stories about the benefit of their ideology winning the day. And they also know how to raise money and they know how to use the storytelling narrative within their communities to raise the necessary money to propagandize people. And that's all we've suffered from. We've suffered from leftist neo-Marxist propaganda for, you know, our whole lives. And, and even before then, I'm 62 years old. And so even before I was born, the propaganda machine was moving towards a large state, uh, large centralized state. And we've just grown up under it. So it's kind of not, um, it's, it's not um, surprising that we are where we are today with this reality that everybody believes freedom is wrong. Um, well, we need to learn to tell a better story. And we don't do this very well. We get into highly technical arguments. Excuse me, for Texas v. White, I could construct an argument that could destroy Texas v. White. It would make no sense. And to the law professors that I speak to, they'll nod their heads and say, yep, yep, that's right. That's right. Who cares? They, they're going on to teach constitutional law the next, you know, the next hour. So it, it doesn't matter that within our little circles, we can say that the Constitution was a coup that they right out of the gate, they, you know, started violating the supposed limitations on their on their centralized power. Literally, the Judiciary Act of 1789. I can tell a great story about 10 months after ratification, 
They're already signing legislation or creating legislation that takes power away from the states. Ten months, ten short months after ratification, the very thing they argued would never happen happens. Well, Blame we Hamilton. just have to get better. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, him was a bad guy. I mean, we know that. So we have to be better at telling stories to the average person because they're the ones we have to appeal to. We have this natural belief that we have to speak to the influencers. By the time you're an influencer in political activism or an elected office, you're 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 already a problem. You're not the solution. You have accepted the premise of the dance and you are getting something in return for it. Either you're getting a hundred and seventy five thousand dollar paycheck up at the House or in the Senate and the Senate, or you're getting applause on the stage as a as a local you know, political activist, you're getting what you want. You're, there's something that you desire. Well, that's kind of a definition of sociopathology called megalomaniac. You're seeking some kind of power. So we have to even ourselves, Dan, we have to get away from thinking we're going to win this thing um, via the uh, influencers. Now, on contra uh, uh, contrary to that, we have to also find new influencers people who are going to actually be able to speak on principle, the ultimate principle. I'm, an, I'm a political anarchist. I'm, I am a total stateless guy. We don't, we don't need it. I'm reading a fascinating book. Um, I'll get it real quick here. The series is called The History of Government. Uh, anarchists, I'm sorry, Ancient Monarchies and Emperors. And I'm reading another book by Dr. Uh, uh, James Scott out of Yale University called um, Un, like undoing the state, how to become ungovernable. Mm -hmm. And and both of these guys are archaeologists, uh, anthropologists, uh, political scientists. And so they trace recorded human history um, and, and try to figure out where did the kind of government we suffer under right now, where did it come from? Is this always been the plight of man? And both of them will argue that, no, this has not been the normal state of man to have these sociopaths claiming a legitimacy to power to rule and then compel by force behavior to their opinions, we call them laws. There hasn't, that has not been the normal state of man. In fact, it's been a very narrow window of time where we've suffered under these sociopaths. Um, and then when you mix in patriotism and hegemony and, you know, wars and all this stuff, the average American has been fed a story their entire lives that America's great, we're great because we win wars. We're great because we have a GDP that's huge. We're great because we have this supposed checks and balances. Those are all just stories that got told to us because there's no counter narrative out there. And when we try to counter narrative, we tend to go technical. We tend to get into details, get into the weeds, and the audience is lost. We've lost our audience. Well, because they can't, they, not, it's, not, it's not their fault, they can't understand what the Judiciary Act of 1789 is. So I can sit all day and talk about how the debate went in the Senate, and, um, and, and I can bring up all the specifics of Section 25, and I'm going to, to the average guy here in Oklahoma that's trying to raise his family or out farming today, and beautiful weather down here today, and out in, in, wherever they are, they're, they're going to go to sleep. It's like, well, what's your, what's your Judiciary Act of 1789? What's Texas v. White? So I think one of the things we've hurt ourselves with, Dan, is that we've not learned to be good storytellers. We just have to get better at storytelling. On my Facebook page, I have a strategy with everything I do. Every every post, and any given, and, and 
during any given day, I start out with a strategy that goes simply like this. I am going to be smash mild provocative on my introductory post. I'm going to condemn Not something. You, I'm going no. to <laughs> I'm going to call the Constitution stupid. I'm going to say you're dumb to say the pledge. I'm going, to, I'm going to do something because I'm trying to do one of two things. I'm either trying to prick their curiosity and then they ask questions or I'm trying to get them angry at me and yell at me in the comment section. Because when I get into the comment section, I put on my pastor professor hat and now I'm there to serve. Now I'm there to help them. I'm they reacted to that. It was a visceral, emotional act, act, uh, reaction to my post, and now I want to help them. I want to serve them. I don't want to fight with them. And, and, and I will tell you on my page, there's many people that have changed their entire viewpoints from conservatism to anarchy, maybe stopping off at libertarianism for a while, but end up in anarchy because the case is just too strong. But I know how to tell a story. I know how to tell a story about the beauty of anarchy. Why man in the state of nature, as Hobbes and Locke argued, is not one who needs absolute rule. He's naturally free. He's designed that way. Mankind is de designed to be free. Well, that doesn't ignore that there's always a subset of the society that's criminal. Well, we can deal with that. But that's not the majority of us. How, how many times today, Dan, were you accosted when you were out today? You went somewhere. Well, I didn't go anywhere, but I was accosted zero times. So, yeah. Well, but so even, then, even but your, the last... your point is that your point is right. That almost, almost never. I mean, it's it's a rare thing yeah. for anybody. I've been robbed one time in my life. That's too bad. And it was I was probably I don't know, probably forty years ago. And other than that, every interaction I have had has been either joyful and peaceful, where we said. Thank you and hello, how are you doing? Kind of, who cares? You're just buying something for me and I'm at a 7-Eleven counter, don't want to be here. So I'm not even going to say thank you to you. Or, you know, a little bit testy where it's like, you know, you're a jerk and why are you bothering me because I'm busy right now. That's it. That That's the extent. Now, Thomas Hobbes, famous uh, English philosopher who had a great deal of input into our form of government, um, along with Locke, but Hobbes is lurking out there too. His argument was, and this is going to get a little bit into the details here in the, in the weeds, his argument that man in the state of nature um, was going to be at war with each other because he just witnessed the English Civil War. So, you know, why wouldn't you think man's going to be at war with each other? You spent your whole life seeing visceral hatred. Um, so that taints his views of man in the state of nature, man without government. So then his argument becomes, well, you've got to have an absolute monarchist, monarch, monarchist to defend the unalienable rights. And it's like, no, I can defend my own unalienable rights. I don't need a monarchist. And once, once that argument gets set in our mind, we, we start thinking very poorly of our fellow man. We do start embracing the idea. One of the biggest pushbacks I get on secession and then ultimately moving into anarchy is what are you going to do with the criminals? What are you going to do with China? What are you going to do with Russia? Well, well, what is Russia? Is Russia, Russia with their one aircraft carrier? How are they going to get here? I'm not going to do anything with Russia. What, what's I'm that? not going to do anything with Russia. You're right. We're going to shake their hand and trade wheat with them. I mean, for gas. But this, this story is so powerful and so emotive. We just naturally say, well, if we don't have the federal government, China's going to get us or Russia's going to get us. 
But that's the story. Now I have to we I have to work through that. I can't just mock it and say, "Come on," because I used to believe that too. No, at one point. That's I think it was Adams was the found. I'm going to get the quote wrong, but the spirit will be right. That fear is the foundation of governments. If you don't make the people afraid of something, it, you can't rule them. And so that right. So we have to worry about the Russians, even though they're half of a planet away, <laughs> depending if it's flat or around. I don't know. Uh, yep. Same thing with China, but although this isn't intended to be a foreign uh, foreign policy podcast, but China probably actually presents some some concern where I think Russia probably does not. Yeah, and I think you could argue on the margins there. They though they've got their hands full internally. There's just so much reporting we don't hear about about rebellions right. that are going on in China. Um, they do, you know, as much as they're a huge country, the Chinese people don't hate us. Um, they just are authority. They, they recognize and submit to authority very easily. So they've been hmm. a people that have been subjugated for, you know, culturally uh, thousands of years. And so their natural posture is submission to authority. But that doesn't mean the average Chinese is going to pick up a weapon and shoot me. It means the sociopaths in Beijing will. <laughs> they would gladly. Mao killed 55 million of his own people. I mean, they're not, these guys are not afraid to kill people, right. but they got their own hands full in China and then they're, they're still dealing in their own theater. They got problems there. Well, it's, you know, this tension. It's probably, you know, that's a good point. And no matter the country, they have their own stuff to take care of. They have their own things to exactly. worry about. They're, I don't <laughs> think anyone's sitting around wringing their hands. How can we get yeah. to America and do something? I, that that right. seems rather preposterous if you consider that for a moment. And that's, I, yes. we have just like us, just like the U.S. has plenty of its own problems. I'm sure 191 other countries have plenty of domestic issues of their own to deal with. And getting even yep. with America isn't on the top of the list. No, no, it's not. And yet, that's another story we've been told. Yeah, well, you know the conservative movement, and where does that come from? Got to be the vast yeah. industrial military complex. Fear. You must you be know? afraid. You must be afraid. There's a new variant. Be afraid. But, exactly. You know, um, I, I'm going to retract my statement. I didn't get mad, although I, I get irritated every day. I take my kid to her summer class thing, her summer school thing, and. They take your temperature. And yeah. I I feel, and, yeah. and today I I said, you know, I, I realize the person doing it isn't the policymaker. I realize, I understand yeah. that. But after 10 days, I just said, you know, that's useless, right? Well, her, her answer in a nutshell was, I'm just following orders. But she's too young to understand what she said. But right. it just, it Man, it just boils my blood because oh, it's just the, the whole thing and, and still with the, the masks and, and just the, oh, good Lord. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's that's not a, that's not a line I want to go down. But the uh, I live in a part of Oregon okay. since 1942 or 1945. They have been this particular area of Northern California, Southern Oregon has been trying to establish sure. the state of Jefferson SOJ 51. And yep. you made out, you, you brought up a point, which I think is interesting that in the current system, you need to get permission 
from right. the overlord to leave the protection of the overlord. And why is anyone surprised that they just don't get that? It never comes. Well, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> but so, how how following your your statement? How could this group of people? who are interested in SOJ-51, and in some counties of Washington, they want to do the State of Liberty. Uh, there is an idea, at least, a movement perhaps, in Oregon to have the state of Idaho move west and absorb some southern counties of Oregon because parts of Oregon... Now, Oregon is blue, but only because yeah. the vast majority of them live in like three counties. The rest of Oregon yeah. is red. So the red Oregon, the south of Oregon, where the desert is, they, they've had it. They're just like, this is, this is unacceptable. Let's go some, with someone who wants us. So how do they do that peacefully? You said seamless well, secession. Here, yeah, so it begins with, again, going back to my original point about propaganda begins with being able to tell a story of freedom and things will be better. You know, at some point when the, when the pilgrims left uh, uh, England, they had to leave and take the risk that they did thinking things would be better across the ocean after a three-month voyage, not sure they would make it uh, to start something new in, in Massachusetts. So at some point, we've got to convince people that their lives are going to be better away from D.C. Now, that is the central point, and this is where the founders have been much smarter than we have. And now they use very effectively the tool of propaganda through pamphleteering, through uh, the Black Herb Regiment, uh, pulpits beginning to speak against the king. They did the one thing you have to do, and actually this is oddly enough in Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, um, rule 13 is you've got to first identify the issue and then you've got to focus people's attention on it and you've got to polarize against it. So what did they do in 1776? They identified the problem, the king. They focused enough people's attention on it to say he's bad so that you could polarize it and say we need to get away from him. So it's, a, it's a common political activist theory and we do it horribly because we like to argue details. And yet we have to say... Okay, well, we have to begin with the people in Oregon have a natural right for self-determination. You don't ask anybody for permission to be free or to establish new boundaries for your territory. The problem is we, we're so subjugated, we think we have to do that, or we're in rebellion to God, we're, we hate America, we hate the flag. And the problem with all these intrastate secession efforts are that you're still under the umbrella of Washington, D.C. And so while you may have relieved some tension from Portland or from Sacramento or from, you know, uh, the capital of Washington, you may, you may relieve some of their pressure. You still are under the EPA, the IRS, the DHS, the NSA. You're still under all of that. You haven't done anything to remove yourself from that. And when that calling card comes with the, with the name federal government behind it, where are you going to go then? What, what are you going to ask China to, you know, engulf or Canada to engulf you? Or, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it, it works against itself in a weird kind of way because you're saying, in one sense, the movements are saying we want to be independent, but you're really only saying we want to be independent of the minor league baseball team in Portland. 
Well, we're okay with a major league team in Washington, D.C., who's doing most of the, uh, causing most of the problem. Um, so the, when we can sort this thing out and really begin to understand that our problem isn't our state capitals. In fact, our state capitals will become much more responsive to us without Washington, D.C. to hide behind. Because if there's one thing that every state legislator knows is that when a constituent comes in spitting mad about something that he did or should have done or didn't do, um, he can very easily, in most cases, say, well, I would have loved to have done that. But the Supreme Court ruled on that in a famous case, blah, 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 versus blah, blah, blah. And we're just not allowed to do it. And But I would love to. I'm totally on your side. I'm totally with you. But I just couldn't. I, we can't. We can't buck the federal government. So it begins really with this ability to paint a picture of a better future without Washington, D.C., because that's what secession is. Inevitably, it's, it's seceding from the union where the United States government is the state capital. So how does that happen functionally? It's actually not hard at all. Every state has their own state constitution right now. So we kind of, even though I'm an anarchist, we've got to kind of use the system that we're stuck in right now. I, I can't wave a magic wand and make the state disappear from the planet, and I can't do it. So I've got to work with the system that I got. Every state has its own constitution. Of the 50 states, 48 of them have some kind of a referendum process. Some states have citizen petitions. That's our state, Oklahoma. We can directly create a referendum. It's one of the great state things about Oklahoma. It's one of the reasons we moved here was because they've got direct petition. We can petition. You can get the signatures. You can get a idea on the ballot. And uh, uh, other states like Texas, you have to work through the legislature. But you, if you can build a political will for this, um, you can get on the ballot a petition. In fact, they just went through a pretty big effort down there last session, this session, uh, trying to get the process of what would secession look like for Texas uh, to the voters for a vote. And if the voters had voted yes, the attorney general and secretary of state would have been required to create a framework to begin to explain to the population of Texas what would Texas look like independent? How would we get there? So they would have to do all the infrastructure analysis, all the energy analysis, agriculture, all that. They would have to do all that analysis to say, without Washington, D.C., what would we look like? It didn't make it. Hey, they got pretty far this year. They got it in, into a committee. They got a sponsor. They got into a committee. And they're a tougher state. The, the, the states with constitutions that require um, uh, legislators to be involved is just tough. It's, it's not impossible, but it's tough. Um, the states that, like my state, that have um, citizen uh, petition, it's easy for us. We just got to follow the forms with the uh, Secretary of State, establish a campaign with the, federal, with the state election board, and we're out there campaigning and saying, hey, Oklahoma deserves to be free and independent. And, um, and now, the real question, though, isn't the process. It's actually quite easy to do the process. The question is, can we do it? Can we, like, the federal government wants us to believe that without them, like, uh, I forgot the congressman's name, Jim Johnston, the, the congressman Johnston, uh, Johnston from Georgia said, when asked about Guam, what would happen if they put too many soldiers on there? And he in committee said, well, aren't we afraid that it's going to tip over? And he literally said it's a famous tape out there. And that. the admiral, did you see that? The admiral's doing everything he can not to laugh. But this is the quality of our oh, leadership. No. Island is going to tip over. 
You got to put two people yeah. inside. Yeah. I... <laughs> so, so I, I, it's not really, the issue isn't really how to do it. It's really not very hard to do. It's, it, our, our state constitution give us the path forward on this. Our real problem is what would happen if we do it? That's, that's really the lurking question. Well, the first one comes up, we talked about earlier was, won't they shoot us? Legitimate question because we've been, you know, it's been bashed into our brains that um, uh, the uh, civil war determines all secession efforts in the future, except that it doesn't. But we want you to believe it does um, because they know if we do, we'll actually do it. Uh, well, if you take the 25 states, 26 states that Trump won, and he won handedly, um, let's imagine this. Tomorrow, Donald Trump issues a press release saying, I'm calling on the 26 states that I won last election to secede from the union. And I will be the transitional president during that transition. And then he was to list off exactly what that 26-state confederation would look like. We would have a $9 trillion GDP out of the gate. We would have uh, 26 deep water ports. We would have two naval fleets of the five that are out there. Two of them are based in our 26 states. We would have unbelievable levels of tactical and strategic air wings that are south of the Mason-Dixon border in his states. We would have you know, hundreds of thousands of military troops that would be stationed in those that would be ours. We would claim them. We would just take claim of them. Remember, it's political. It's not legal. Right. It's political. And we would call upon the generals for those battalions and regiments and divisions to uh, support this effort. Um, it would happen or it would happen in a week. We'd, we'd be broken up in a week. And and, and so that's really this. But, but we have Trump would have to say, and life will be better without Washington, D.C. Because I'll tell your listeners right now how many people in your audience go to their mailbox, open it up, get a letter from the IRS, and fall to their knees and say, oh, thank God I've heard from my federal government today. Nobody says that. We're all like, oh, my gosh, what is going to happen to me now? What are they going to do to me? And we, and that we should. I mean, you should be terrified of them. These are maniacs yeah. that have a lot of power. Too much. And, and so imagine if we paint a story that says, now imagine a 26-state confederation with no federal regulation, no IRS. Your life improves immediately when we're separate because there's nobody taking payroll. I mean, uh, payroll taxes or um, uh, federal taxes. No, you don't have to submit any plans to an EPA. You don't have to worry about getting felt up at an airport because we'll just tell the TSA to stay in the 24 states to the north. You, you guys will form your own confederation up there. We don't want any of this. Um, so when you can paint a picture that your life will improve without Washington, where you will have total control over your geographic area we call states right now, um, Man, that's that's a pretty positive message in light of what we've seen the CDC do to us, what we've seen um, with the education uh, monopoly around the country, which your which your child is suffering from right now, needing to get you know a stupid you know uh, a thermometer test to come in. Uh, what we've all suffered from with the mask mandates and suggestions. Well, I will tell you, if in many states had the people had the power. And the political apparatus of the state wasn't hiding behind the CDC or the, the president. 
the mass mandates in most of the states would have been gone early on, early on. There wouldn't have been any mass mandates. But there was so much fear coming from that stupid CDC. Well, what if, what if, what if we, I ask people this routinely, imagine what would have the response been to whatever COVID-19 is. And, you know, I don't think any of us really fully have a grasp of what that thing is. Whatever it is, what would have been an anarchist response to that? Well, now you've got a clear juxtaposed picture. What would they have done? The only thing we'd have known was the press would have reported there's a virus out there and it's killing people in the hospitals. We'd have had some epidemiologists, we'd have had some noted scholars on TV and physicians saying, well, this is a dangerous thing. We'd encourage everybody to you know, stay inside, but if you don't want to, we understand this is a free society. There's nobody to tell you you can't. We'd encourage you to put your masks on. And most people, for time until they figured it out, probably would. And, but it would be all voluntary. And it, the fear would be in our control. The trouble is they used fear and then said, we have control of your lives over that now, or because of that fear. And they dropped the hammer on us. I mean, they totally creamed us this last year. Well, well I want to... Go ahead. From a... We haven't really used military jargon too much, but <clears throat> from a from a war standpoint, and I don't really speak war. I never was in that and serve. It was a multi-front assault because it wasn't just wasn't just the guy Fauci on TV and Scarf Lady. Right. It was the CDC, right. and then it was the World Health Organization. Then it was. Facebook, and then it was Twitter, and then you were banned if you said, uh, I I can't say it, hydrochloroquine or ivermectin, that's probably not the right word. Right. You know, you, the, the amount of propaganda may have, for this may be unprecedented in recent memory of anybody cogent enough to have a memory. And it's, one, it's kind of amazing, it's also really kind of dangerous. And so that's the, the, the people now I'm, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of things, but I think the people who accepted those conditions at face value are the people who may say, yeah, Mark, anarchy, as you describe it, sounds good. But then they're going to have some. Oh, who's going to build my roads? Yeah, and yeah, right. right. You, it's, it's not. I, I think for. So I think the my roads response is. Isn't they don't really care about the roads. They might, but it's not that they can't think about who would build a road. I think it's a response for. a sense of loss of total security. Not that you really are that secure now, but it feels like you are because you pick up a phone and you call your utility and you got a problem and they fix it. Lights are out, oh, the power is on. Tree fall down, we got workers out fixing it. Whatever the problem is, there's an easy explanation and someone's working to fix it. So take that away and it's like Linus when Lucy takes away his blanket. They, he's just frazzled. It's not an 
it's not an asymptomatic, I can't say the word, it's not an unsympathetic response. But it's tough, I think, to give some words that are going to make that person or that group of people feel like this other option is even possible. I think this, you know, this is a leadership heavy lift. There's no question about it. And, and, but we see throughout history, there's been moments of peril where there's been a good, strong leadership lift. Um, and, and that's where we are. It's fundamentally where we are. It's, I don't, I don't look to the average person. Like I don't mock the average person that put on the mask or social distance or lockdown or whatever. I don't mock them for doing that. I recognize why they do it. They're subjugated. They're, they don't know what else to do because there's actually literally nobody else telling them what else to do. There's nobody providing another option. So let's go back to 1776. And you've got a small group of rabble rousers in Boston who don't want to be under the king. Now, they have a whole range of motivations for not wanting to be the king. And some of them are just literally the rabble rousers. <laughs> this is a chance to throw some punches. So we're going to, I hate the tax collectors, so we're going to attack. I'm, I'm going to be part of part of feathering him. So it's, it's a whole range of patriotic ideas of freedom all the way to I want to just start feather the guy because I'm bored on Friday night. And yet, nevertheless, from a small group of people in Boston, you get what ends up being the war for independence. So we can't discount the possibility of, of ideas catching fire. The trouble is, it goes back to what I said earlier, we're not good at telling stories. We're just not good at doing this. We have to learn to get much better at painting a better future without the lies. And this is where I think the moral high ground argument works. This is why I do what I do on my Facebook page. I assault the morality of all the existing systems, I call them criminal, evil, I, you know, I bash them constantly. Now, I'm doing that to the person that reads it and says, is Mark calling me immoral? Because I'm going to let him have it. <laughs> or, or I'm trying to create a wedge that they believe something to be moral that is actually immoral. So I think we have to get a lot more aggressive. So when you read some of the things that were said about the king um, in 1774 or 5 leading up to 76. I mean, this guy is an evil guy, in most, at least the, the caricature. No, he's not actually that bad of a guy, but the caricature of him, you've got to have the caricature uh, of him, is um, that he's a bad guy. And he's trying to tyrannize us and take our stuff and order soldiers in our houses. Of course, that's not really happening very much. And it's a very tiny tax and probably a legitimate tax for all the protection the British soldiers gave gave them on the Western frontier. I mean, so, you know, it, it, there's a lot more to this story than what we were told in school. Right. Um, and I get why we aren't told. It's just too long to cover. But nevertheless, the propagandists in Boston and in a few New York and a few other small Philadelphia places are doing a great job propagandizing, saying the king is evil. Well, did Rush Limbaugh ever say the federal government's evil? Does Sean Hannity today ever say? No, it's the Democrats that are evil. And see, until we get our team on the field able to make good moral arguments. And I'm seeing it happening. Actually. I, don't, I don't think this game is over by a long shot. You know, you're, a, you're running a podcast. I'm going to start one next, excuse me, next month. And 
I have discovered at my age, 62, this whole um, ecosystem out there in the podcast world. So I find myself listening daily to podcasts and realizing, oh, no, there's a lot more of us out there than than the federal government would ever want to know how many people out there are chewing around independence, secession, this idea of getting as a first stage to anarchy in some locations away from the federal government. Um, there's a lot of that discussion going on. I know in my state here alone, there's a lot of discussion going on about secession uh, because people are terrified of COVID and all the nonsense that came from the federal government and the World Health Organization and the World Economic Forum and Davos and all that nonsense that mm. we were spoon-fed. They're terrified of that, but they're also terrified of the what the government did to them the last year and a half. And so I don't think this game is over by a long shot. I think they would have to kill a lot of people to really deliver the final blow to civilization. And I don't put it past them. No, I mean, my they, gosh, they've done really it before. Close. Yeah, they've done it before. There's, and, and you know, the guy they people vote for is usually a sociopath that doesn't have a conscience. They don't have a problem. Um, so, but I also see this other ecosystem out there, even in my own personal community here in the state, I realize, oh, no, there's a lot of people that have given the chance tomorrow for Oklahoma to be independent would do it in a second. It wouldn't even be a second thought for them. And these are not people that I've spent a long time with. There's there's a there's a counter to this fear that's happened to us the last year and a half. And some of it is we're telling a story that says, do you want to stop that? Now, now imagine this, Dan, and, I, and this is kind of the hopeful side of this, so I, th I think structurally it's very easy to secede. It's done through referendum. It's a peaceful vote. If they decide to start shooting us, well, we're going to be able to defend ourselves here. We're, this is not the Civil War. This is not the same time anymore. This is not 1860. This is the 21st century. And the 26 Trump states with all the natural or, uh, National Guard units, um, the, the, the natural affection the military has towards him. This I can tell you a story about somebody I know very well who is in right now, just had a battalion um, command change, and the commander stood up and said, uh, listen, I don't buy any of this COVID stuff. In my uh, battalion, we're not wearing masks. We're not, none of the vaccines. So we're not doing any of that stuff. Well, now, this fellow is a lieutenant colonel, so he's not way up the chain of command, but he's high enough that he's at least signaling to his troops, we ain't following what where the where the move is where everything's moving we're not going to do that there's a lot of dissension in the ranks a lot of dissension it just gets covered up by new york times and washington they're not going to report on it why would they why would they report on it so so imagine we get through the structural part and we realize okay all 26 states could secede tomorrow i can prove economically with a nine trillion dollar gdp 26 deep water ports, all the agriculture, all the energy we would possibly need, uh, the all the military we would possibly need. Um, we can eat. We will flourish without Washington, D.C., because you'll lose the IRS, you'll lose the EPA, the TSA, DHS, HHS. You'll lose all that. And there's answers within the state with that big of a GDP, $9 trillion. That's a huge GDP. Now, you take off all federal regulations. You invite the crypto community into that union. You're gonna your nine trillion dollar GDP is gonna go to fourteen trillion dollar GDP pretty quickly, and because business will want to be there because 
the regulations are gone. The federal regulations are gone. Now they can do business. They can innovate. They can create new products. And, and even products related to COVID-19, this will be a business hotspot. Now, the third part of this is that it gives us a beachhead to counterattack. So if you'll recall Normandy, when those soldiers went across that beach, they knew they had to carve out a little plot of land to begin to bring on the tanks and the armored personnel carriers and logistics and tents and food. and all. They couldn't push east towards Berlin without getting that tiny little beachhead and be able to set up operations so they could push east. And eventually we know the war ends. Well, the same uh, analogy can be uh, applied here. Imagine if we get 26 states. Now, granted, we're 26 states and we're, you know, the second power, most powerful GDP in the world at that point. Imagine if philosophically our leader, a new crop of leaders emerges that says, COVID's with us forever. We're never getting rid of it. We're not going to, we're never going into lockdowns again, ever. We're never putting masks on. We're not mandating passports. We're not mandating vaccines. And we've got a huge GDP. And not only can we um, control ourselves, we um, manage ourselves, we can inflict pain on trade partners that are going to put their citizens through that. Well, suddenly those 26 states become a beacon of light to Germany. There's a massive uh, rebellion going on in Germany right now. It just doesn't get reported. There's rebellions all over the world on these sociopath lockdowns. Um, they just don't know what else to do. They don't know what to do. In the UK, you've got no guns. So you can't organize against, you know, there. Um, same with most other countries. They've removed the guns. We've got 425 million here. There's no chance this goes down well here. <laughs> There's no chance the South is going to participate in a buyback. <laughs> They're not going to do it. <laughs> I know these people down here. They're not going to do it. And and so they're and most of the military is not going to shoot their neighbor either. They're not going to, you know, my National Guard neighbor is not going to shoot me because his commander orders to come get my guns. He's going to stand here and say, no, I'm going to shoot him. <laughs> I'm going to shoot him. So it's, it's not what we think. And we have to break through the noise of the lies and say, now we've got a beachhead, 26 states, $9 trillion GDP, deep water ports, two naval fleets. We can build four more if we need to, many more if we need to. And now suddenly we can launch a counterattack against Davos and World Health Organization, the UN. And, and, and now we can go on the offensive for freedom and say, we're going to liberate the world of these sociopaths. Well, now our story gets all the more compelling. It's not just we're doing better. We're serving our fellow man who's been tormented by their sociopaths and, and their government. And, and you know, I, I don't want to ever discount the idea that freedom can still prevail. Now, I'm an evangelical born-again Christian, and I totally understand end-time theology and when Jesus returns and all that. And I get that, that, that that's a separate discussion on a theological level. And he's, he's going to return when he wants to return. But I'm not going to frame my future with four adult grandchildren, seven grandchildren, uh, four adult children, seven grandchildren, I'm not going to frame my my decision-making going forward on some theological construct that I can't even prove. I can't prove he's coming back in 2026 or, or, or 9,422. I don't know when he's coming back. I have no, no clue. But I'm dealing with the face of evil right now. 
right now I know I'm dealing with evil and I've got four adult children, a beautiful wife and seven grandchildren, a ton of friends. I'm fighting. I'm, and, and I believe we, this battle is totally winnable. I think there are house of cards. I think there are paper tiger. We just don't have good leaders right now. Dan, we don't have good storytelling, but listen to Michael Malice some. Listen to uh, Dave Smith some. Jesus teaches this principle in the uh, in one of his parables. It's, it's the parable of the, the wineskins. And he's talking about Jewish leaders, and, and they're represented by the old wineskin. He says, you can't pour new wine. He's the new wine. You can't pour new wine into old Jewish leaders the wineskins because those old wineskins will burst because they're old and crusty and they can't handle new fermenting wine. So he goes on to say, you pour new wine into new wineskins and you're a new wineskin. I'm a new wineskin. We've got to see our role here as propagandists for good and freedom and and correcting this nightmare that these sociopaths created seemingly almost overnight, because it wasn't almost overnight. They've been planning this for 40 years. It's just the right set of circumstances came up. Right. So I think we've, my job on Facebook right now is to find new, new wineskins. That's what I do all the time. I've met a bunch of them. I've met a bunch of new wineskins. And, and so when I listen to the podcast, shows that I listen to, I hear a lot of new wineskins out there and I realize they're, they're going to be scared of this group. They're going to be, this group is going to lead us out of, now I'm 62 and I had quadruple bypass surgery last year and who knows how much longer I got, but I hope I live to see what I think is coming. I just heard a podcast today from a guy who's involved in education policy and this pan scam pandemic, whatever you want to call it has led to um, 11% of parents are now homeschooling. Now that is a almost doubling amount from what it was. Now those numbers, so when you have that many people pulling out from what have, they have been raised to believe is the traditional way we educate, um, you've got a revolution going on under the surface that is scaring every superintendent and every state sociopath superintendent, you know, to death right now because they're going to get their funding cut by tens of millions of dollars because most funding mechanisms are based on per people, per, 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 per pupil in the school. Well, suddenly these parents are saying, Hey man, you screwed us the whole last year and a half. We've learned how to do this on our own. We're going to do it on our own. Thank you. But no, thanks. Well, Pretty much everybody in the education, the government education establishment, uh, is terrified right now of that number um, because they lose their influence. I homeschooled all four of my children. They didn't get any of the baloney that the average government school student does. There's, we didn't do any of the theor theoretical social lifestyle, you know, living in our instruction. We taught them how to think critically and to think well. They've all made their own decisions now. They all have their own views of life and society and culture. And, and it's because we equipped them with the skills to make those decisions. We didn't tell them what to think. Well, that's what you get in government schools. You're being told to support the government. You're being trained to be a little robot 
an automaton in their big picture. And um, so I think, Dan, we've just got to be better storytellers. We've got to improve the skill. There's a great book out there called Storyboarding. Um, that is a marketing book, but it, it, the whole idea is you succeed in business by telling your customer a story about how you're going to improve their lives. Well, my gosh, if our beliefs, I know you're a libertarian, I'm an anarchist. If our, if we believe our beliefs, it's a beliefs, it's a better future for everybody. Well, we've got to learn how to tell stories to the conservative and to the liberal even, who isn't a leftist, he's just liberal on social policy, but he's not really a Marxist. Um, to the uh, Even to the Libertarian Party, to the Green Party, we've got to learn to say freedom is going to be better always, always. There's never a time that freedom isn't better in a societal context. And and it comes with its ups and downs. Freedom's not perfect, but we don't live in a perfect world. And so there's going to always be criminals and there's always going to be thieves out there that you know, it's just, that's always going to be, it's one of the great lies of government that they erect themselves and give themselves legitimacy claiming to protect us from the very things they are, and they actually never protect us from it. There's still murder. There's still thievery going on. All of it's going on. And they don't catch all of it. And a lot of it goes on for a long time. My gosh, they've stolen from me for 40, uh, 44 years. They don't catch the it because they perpetuate the it. Yes, yes, they do. And so I just encourage people to learn to be better storytellers. Freedom is always better in a political context, in a societal context than government. There's, you cannot make the argument that government is better for society. It always murders people. It always steals from people. It lies. It's used by special interest groups to grow their monopolies. It's used by business, um, you know, to grow their monopoly. I mean, Twitter and Facebook are not private companies. We shouldn't treat them that like that. They're federal agencies. Just happen to have they take they take federal money all the time. They all do. They 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 transfer data to the National Security Agency. They're federal contractors, and they should be treated as federal contractors. I use it because that's how I speak to my audience. But right. You know, I think one of the, one of the appeals as I'm thinking about it, and that would appeal to me first, it would require explaining what natural rights are, but uh, in the book, Secession, State and Liberty, David Gordon of the Mises Institute, who he wrote the introduction to the book and he's the editor for the book. He asked the question, why should supporters of natural rights reject the right of secession? Now, because it's Gordon, it's 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 asked in that way because because David's just that smart. But it's a really good question, and it's something I think if we're going to start to tell stories, the story needs to include the natural rights that you don't think that you have. You, I think. Now, I watch a lot of Tenth Amendment Center uh, shows with Michael Bolden, and it seems like most people think their rights come from a piece of paper called the Bill of Rights. And if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have any rights. Well, that's it's infuriating, and of course, we know better than that. But there's a lot of people who don't know better than that. They don't know what natural rights are. So if you know what that means, 
that your life, liberty, pursuit of uh, ownership of property, they change to your know, right to be happy, pursuit of happiness. You don't have the right to have, but you can pursue it. You may not get it, but that's not yeah. the same thing. Um, the right to self-defense. You have the right to speak. You have the right not to speak. I think if we can present the story in the way that the things that are being presented in a secessionist idea are actually in favor of you because right now you don't actually kind of have those things. Can you grow the plant of your choice? Probably not. Can you, you know, can you, can you drink what you want and drive? You know, I think it was Lou Rockwell made the case, an interesting essay about, being being fined for the contents of your blood. I'm pretty sure every state has a rule. If you hit somebody with a car, that's a crime. And no one's going to dispute that if you hurt somebody, that's an issue. If you're driving with some particular level of thing in your blood, alcohol, THC, I don't whatever the thing is in cocaine, who knows? Only by the presence of that contaminant in your blood, now you're a criminal, that's a hard argument to make. But we accept that argument from the state because, well, there's a law. What about the law of gravity? You know, I mean, so, but I, I think while it's true that we do have arguments that tend to focus on nuance and not the broad picture. I think part of the problem with people making arguments for liberty is an an easy surrender to be then just flippant because the resolve of the obstinate is seemingly stronger than the resolve of the persuader. You think that sounds right? Oh, yeah, I do. I, th- I think that it does um, if we are in the world of arguing technical details. I think that tends to create, uh, you know, because usually when you're arguing in the technical details about the ideas of national rights, you're almost always talking to somebody that already holds an existing position about them. They thought through, they at least understand the concept of natural rights, and, and they have bought the idea that the state protects them, the state protects natural rights. What I, what I do now is I don't accept any of the existing premises out there about the state. I, I go back to Murray Rothbard's uh, Anatomy of the State. I, my argument now is natural rights can only be understood the minute you can understand life without the state. Because you can never list natural rights. This is one of the great problems with natural rights. We, we are a people that want order and we want organization. So, you know, we naturally want to say, well, is this a natural right? Is this a natural right? And, and inevitably, government will step in there and say, oh, with our Bill of Rights, we'll kind of hint at what rights are. And, and now you've got these political rights, too, and civil rights, because you need the state. And they, they sell this very seductive idea. Now, to be fair, the state did not emerge out of nowhere. It emerged because there were people that actually were threatened by sociopaths. And so inevitably, you kind of create a government to defend yourself. And, you know, there are bully sociopaths and there are some that defend their own, you know, geographic territory. And so there are certainly times throughout recorded history you can see the value, I would say, I would argue for an ad hoc government. 
government, something that might, might resemble uh, a government, but ad hoc, defining it as only temporary in nature, it, it survives only for a specific task, and then it goes away. I'm, I'm fine with that. That's more governance than government. So if I'm if, if our country is under attack, our 26-state confederation is under attack, I may be all for an ad hoc um, uh, explosion of military expenditure to defend our borders, but it only lasts as long as the threat, you know, is there. So then it goes away, and we we sink the ships and burn, and you know, take off the uniforms and throw them away, and and we go back to our businesses. Um, so uh, you know, I think we have to be fair that there have been times throughout recorded history that people have seen a need to create a state or suffer with a state for some external threat. And the problem is they didn't think to ad hoc it. They, it became a state, a perpetual state. And then when you look at the, the, the advance of Western civilization, they've almost always had some element of a king or a monarchy. Or, and then we get into the Westphalian treaties and we end up with nation states. And, and we are here today with 196 nation states that supposedly have legitimacy over their people, they're sovereign and can function over their people. And, um, and, and so I think with that as kind of our backdrop that we, we have this problem called the state, it doesn't do us any good to argue within their framework. And I think this is a great error that we make when we argue the Bill of Rights, when we argue Article 1, Section 8, you know, we make all these, uh, you know, Article 6 arguments. I used to make them, so I totally understand this. I've evolved in my own thinking. I think you have to just come around and say, we can only understand natural rights once we can cross the Rubicon in our mind of what it would be like without the state. What would life be like? Well, now that makes people stop for a minute and imagine and perhaps for the first time in their life, Dan, become critical thinkers. That might really be the first time they have a critical thought about society. Because I'm asking them a question is, what would your life be like? Now, most cases, they're going to go to fear because that's what they know. What about the roads? You know, who's going to defend us from Russia? Who's going to defend us from China? Who's, you know, We're going to go right back into it. That's fine. I can answer all those arguments. Those are not hard. Actually, I can make beautiful arguments about all those. Um, futuristic peaceful arguments about all this. Um, and so I think we, we, we've got to be brave enough in our own convictions to say the state is stupid, it is evil, it is dumb, it serves no purpose but human suffering, and you will only understand natural rights when you don't have the state. Now, if you actually do want natural rights, you have to read Murray Rothbard's, you know, anatomy of the state. You've got to begin to think, what does it even feel like to be free? That's why we coined terms like relative freedom, Dan. That's exactly where that term came from. There's, there's no such thing as relative freedom. I mean, that's kind of an oxymoron. When you stop and think about it, it's like, I'm relatively free. Well, how free? I thought free is free. <laughs> free. Well, you're relative. <laughs> when compared to China, well, I'm not sure that comparison even holds anymore. Right. I'm not sure that, you know what I mean? So, but we do that to soothe our conscience. But more importantly, we do that because nobody's giving our average consumer of politics 
an alternative. And I go right back to my indicting of Rush Limbaugh and Mark Levin and John Hannity and Laura Ingram, all those conservative leaders, to Donald Trump, to John Boehner, whoever, it doesn't matter who it is. They all operated, as Tom Woods has famously said, within the three-by-five card of approved political opinion. And that three-by-five card has on one side of it Nancy Pelosi and on the other side of it Mitch McConnell. And you're allowed to argue in there, but don't you dare go outside those that three-by-five index card. Because now you're a traitor, you hate America, you're treasonous, you know, they're gonna they're gonna you're an insurrection, they're gonna assign everything to you. And unfortunately, all of our well not ours, mine, but all of the conservative, the natural people who should understand natural rights, libertarians, um, the even even liberals who will appreciate natural rights if they can have the actually have them. A lot of their arguments are for natural rights. They just want government to give natural rights to people and they just get it all jumbled in their mind. Um, but they're not all bad-meaning people. Um, the very minute we've got leaders that emerge on the stage that say the state is dumb, it's stupid, it's evil, it's corrupt, it brings massive human suffering, we need to get rid of it, um, then you'll understand natural rights. You're at least going to encourage the your listener to be a critical thinker, maybe for the first time. Instead, we've had Limbaugh say, you got to vote GOP. you got a lesser of two evils. Yeah, I know Rick Mitt Romney's not a good guy, but, you know, he's better than Obama. So, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, we have no leaders having these kind of, well, I shouldn't say that. Now. I have to take that back. I've, I'm on podcasts with people who have 250,000 people in their audience, and uh, they're, they're saying exactly what needs to be said. They're saying the whole thing is corrupt. It's a horrible entity. It, if, you could, if you could push it into the Atlantic Ocean and tie anchors to it, and send it to the bottom forever, never to come out, that would be the that would be the best thing that would happen in human civilization. And so, I recognize, like you do, that we're we got a long, we got a tall mountain to climb. There's no question. That's why I always frame this: if I live long enough, I don't know. But at the same time. I, I watch what happened in, in Boston in 1776, and without the internet, without technology, without fast communications and ability to organize, they pulled off the greatest, uh, you know, experiment in human independence up until that point. They pulled it off without any of the tools that we have, so maybe things could go really fast. It just takes people believing they can be free and being humble enough to admit they're slaves. Um, that was probably the big turning point for me. It. It's, um, I don't agree. I don't disagree with the assessment. I just think that that's a big ask. Because it it, it's, it's acknowledging that everything that you've been told and accepted is, is a lie. And that's, that's a hard place to choose to be. <laughs> it's, yeah, I wish so, I could tell you stories. And one of the things we're going to do on the podcast I'm going to start next month is a lot of the folks on my page who have done that very thing and from all walks of life, Dan, I mean, all walks of life, from from deeply religious people to atheists, um, have come to understand that it began with humility. Their Their transformation began by admitting Everything I believed was was a lie. 
Well, I did too. Well, guys, you got to give yourself a little bit of a break too here because we got pounded by hundreds of billions of dollars of well-thought-out propaganda and with no counter to it. Our parents couldn't counter it because they didn't know to counter it. This is legacy kind of propaganda. This isn't new. I mean, the stuff during the last year and a half is new, but I guarantee right now there are all kinds of focus groups going on preparing for a fall, you know, Delta variant launch of get back in your home, put the mask back on and get that needle in your arm. And, you know, they're, they're working hard right now. Well, we better move pretty quick too. And it begins with just being humble enough to admit I believe a lie. Well, we've all done that. Who hasn't done that? I used to think well done steaks were good until I. <laughs> How could you? How could I? I had to be humble and admit that rare and medium rare is much, much better. <laughs> but I'm serious. I did. So it's in all walks of life. I mean, when I, I got angry at my wife yesterday and I had to apologize to her. Why? Because I was wrong. I just had to admit I was wrong. All right. I shouldn't have gotten angry. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And she did. So, man, hegemony and jingoism has so affected our minds, man, that I want to tell people like I do on my Facebook page, get humble, get smarter and get humble. If you do those two things, you'll figure out what it is to be free. You just will. Because you'll be open to listen to what freedom is, and it ain't the Bill of Rights, and it ain't Article 1, Section 8, and it ain't voting, and it ain't, you know, voting the lesser two evils. It's not Trump. Trump's not going to save the day. He could just be a useful tool right now if he declared, if he called on those 26 states to secede, we'd be seceding the next week. Mm. Um, and maybe he'll hear your podcast. It would, you know, it would be entertaining to watch. <laughs> Let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. So tell me, what kind of cuisine do you cook? Well, actually, we're going to get into that a little bit. I, I there, It's mostly, it's easier to say, I guess, what I don't. So I can, oh. I can, I, I was trained, uh, well, like most, I was trained in the classical French tradition. And professionally and then, trained. Yeah. And then from that, wow. so you, you go from... And even the culinary, so I went to culinary school and then I ended up teaching culinary school. The basis for culinary education is is French cooking because there is a codification of everything. It's Escoffier, Carême first, but really Escoffier did it. Escoffier was a food... Well, the the term is in disfavor now, but Scott was a food scientist, and that means that um, he experimented with lots of things, lots of procedures, lots of flavor combinations to get the one that 
in his opinion, and it gets his flavor, his opinion, but that he thought worked best. So when you look at Ligid Culinaire, there's 5,700 5, some other recipes in there. That represents dozens of efforts on all of them to find out what worked best. Now, that's good. That's fine. That doesn't mean that they yeah, can't sure. be then further modified, but you can't take chicken tenderloin and add foie gras to it and say it is Rossini. So I'm sorry, that's right. not going to work. Right. Um, right. So the, the, the French model leads into Italian. And of course, Catherine de Medici taught the French how to make, how to cook. It was the French that made sauces. That was, it's probably yes. really true. Um, so Western European food mostly. And then, then you say, well, what about American food? Well, mm-hmm. there's actually an entire career because what is American food? It is. You know, here, yeah. in, here in Oregon <laughs> and Washington, yep. We, yep. there is a, like anywhere else, there is a foodstuffs ecosystem here that yes. doesn't exist in Oklahoma. And right, right. In, in the Keys and in the coast of Florida, both Gulf and Atlantic, yep. there is a food culture that doesn't exist in Oklahoma or in Michigan yep. or in Maine or in Oregon. Yep. So you can either get 50 different regions for American food or narrow it down a little bit so you get Appalachian, Southern, Creole, um, Southwest, Pacific Northwest. And you can go as big or as small as you want to and become, you can get really focused, really niche, or pick and choose. So there's a lot of food fusion opportunities so yeah. you can do salmon with hazelnuts because they both grow here and blackberries, although that sounds awful. Um, or you can take blackberries because we have transportation and do something with shrimp, but that still sounds awful. Um, <laughs> pompano and hazelnuts works. Actually, okay. that's fantastic. But shrimp and hazelnuts, yeah, ha, there's a way to do that. But shrimp and blackberries, maybe, yeah. there's no way to do that. That's not yeah, I couldn't see that combination. No. Um, <laughs> a, compo, but, a compo drizzled over top of no, salmon. No. Uh, <laughs> Uh-oh, you're thinking now. <laughs> it's possible. You need some heat, you need some acid, but it might work. All right, so it. you have graciously moved us into the next part of the show, which is just a short answer or not. Uh, to some questions I have that have nothing to do with secession. Uh, so first of the five flavors, sour, salty, bitter, sour, or umami, which one is your favorite? Oh boy. Um, I would say salt. What's your favorite food? Steak. Beef. What's your least favorite food? Uh, I am not a fan of pastas. Wow. Uh-oh. <laughs> am I kicked off the show? So is it, is it the, I, I don't normally 
ask follow-ups, but I'm really interested in this part. Is it the ingredient itself or is it the accompaniments that go with it? I would say, you know, probably part of it is I grew up in upstate New York. And, and so in Syracuse, we had a, you know, the city was essentially broken into four different quadrants. You had the Germans, you had the Polish, you had the Italians, and then everybody else over here. And so when you go over to the Italian quadrant of Syracuse, there is authentic Italian food and they're making their own pastas. And I mean, everything is from scratch. There's scratch cooking going on there. That's what I grew up on. So then I leave New York and I rarely can find homemade pasta or fresh made pasta. And so you end up with this poorly cooked. So I can't, I can't say I, I don't like pasta. I guess I don't like the American expression of pasta at a normal restaurant because it's rarely cooked well. And, you know, it doesn't hold the sauce. They're probably rinsing it off back there in the kitchen. And I don't know yeah. what they're doing. But, you know, so I, I say okay. pasta. And then, and then also, if you don't care about the accoutrements to the pasta, which Unless you, and I'm, I'm in Oklahoma, so it's not like this is the Italian capital of the world. There's not a lot of scratch Italian cooking going on that I found here. Unless you can, um, unless you find somebody cares, and then you're kind of reduced to doing it at home yourself. And, and as you know, making pasta is not an easy chore. I mean, it's it, it, it takes time. and it, it takes time and some space, but... It's better. Because, you know, there's... There's a even amongst cooks who aren't who weren't in restaurant cooks, there there is. This is the thing that and the bakers get this. There is a an order and a procedure mm -hmm. to cooking on a stove is just alchemy. It's just who cares? Yeah, yeah. But making a thing, making the pasta. Because every day is different because just everything changes. The yeah. eggs aren't always the exact yep. same amount of moisture. The flour isn't the same amount of moisture. So it's a tweak. It's a process. And you get it to the point And you get that silky, shiny, supple pasta dough. You, uh, you already have <laughs> high expectations. You got the meal. <laughs> so you, you wrap it carefully. Yep. Store it in the cooler for an hour or so. You get the pasta machine out. There's the, the whole ritual is the word. Yeah, it really the is. The whole ritual and process of going through the steps to make the thing makes making the thing the reward into itself. What happens that's after it. that is incidental. Yeah, that's it. And, and that's really how I. This is an, this is your portion, not mine. But that's really what excited me about cooking. And took years to figure it out that. Putting the finished product on the plate was fine because it meant that the customer got to eat it, yeah. but I didn't really care about yeah. that. Yeah. At that point, it was over. It's done. I don't care. What really mattered was making the raw ingredients, taking the raw ingredients, making something mm -hmm. that was going to be, you, you can't seek to do it. You can't do it on purpose, but every once in a while, uh, as, as a customer, mm -hmm. You eat, this is, this is the uh, Marcel Proust Madeleine moment. You eat something, and in that moment, you are magically teleported to some other time and place. <laughs> and you can, you can smell that yeah. place. You, you can feel, if it was a hot day, you can feel the heat. And in that second of eating something, 
you have disappeared for a moment to somewhere else. And when you can do that, and you can't attempt to because you have no idea who's coming in the door, mm-hmm. but they'll tell you. They will let you say, I've had waitresses come back and say, guy on table or whatever says, it's just like his grandma's. And, oh, and that go home. See, now look at He's done. It's my Cassandra moment. I'm out. <laughs> when you do that, no matter where you are, yeah. That's the reason to do the cooking is to is to, and the other thing is maybe it's so good that you didn't have that moment, but five years later, somebody goes and has a dish and they're yeah. back in your restaurant, they're back in your kitchen, they're back at your table. Yes. They're like, oh my god, this is like I had before. Yeah, that's that's an amazing thing to do. So you're what you're missing, you're missing somebody to make the pasta. Yeah. That makes you now be back in New York. That's That's exactly it. I was just going to say, I'm looking for that person that makes the lasagna that I had at Gruen's restaurant back in in Syracuse. All right. And and I can still taste it. I hope you find it. I do too. And I have not. not, But but look at what you just did. This is, you just, you totally illustrated my point about telling stories. You just drew me into the moment. Like you totally drew me into. You put me back in Syracuse for that brief moment of the silky pasta. You, you know, you're telling the story, and it's like, oh man, I want to go. I want to go back to Syracuse, and I don't know if he's still there or not. But you know, I, I, it's what we have to do with with liberty and freedom, and and tell the story so that people can feel it and believe that they can get there again. Because I'm gonna believe that I can get that Italian that lasagna one more time before I die. Now, if it means I have to go back to you know, back up there, then then that's where I get it. But, you know, so I say pasta only because you're right, exactly right. It's juxtaposed against my my past and nothing's ever come to that yet. That's exactly right. Very great point. And thought of it. Okay. All right. So uh, I think I may have an answer to this, but what gets you excited? Freedom. Well, let me say first and foremost, my family. I, I love... And, and my relationship with Jesus Christ is paramount to all that. It frames who I am and what I do. So that naturally elevates my wife and my children um, and grandchildren. So I love that. I love community. And then somewhere mixed in there is the torment of knowing we're headed for a deeper slavery if we can't um, recover freedom. And so freedom for now at some kind of a vocational level is what excites me, um, you know, and, and gets me going. But it's all framed in my relationship with Jesus Christ and my family and my kids and my grandkids. And gardening. <laughs> what turned you off? Um, well, uh, in this arena is stubbornness. Um, against facts, you know, cold, hard facts. So when I can destroy the Constitution and the illusion that it created a limited government right out of the gate, and then people still say, yeah, I know, but it's still the greatest document on the planet. <laughs> please, will you please? They're just going to defend it. and But that's not a very big group of people. Most people will just say, oh, I didn't know that. I mean, there's a lot you didn't know. A lot I didn't know until I found it out. Uh, so stubborn, stubbornness up against facts, um, from well-meaning people 
not not for the sociopaths that are in political activism or elected office. Not not that I expect them, you know, I totally expect them to obfuscate against facts. Um, but the average well-meaning person that got super indoctrinated, usually highly patriotic veterans and that sort, um, their stubbornness and recalcitrance up against facts tells me, uh, we got trouble here, Houston. That 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 bothers me a great deal. What sound do you love? Oh gosh, the ocean. Just such a beautiful sound. I used to live on the East Coast, went to school down in Florida. <laughs> and so, you know, there's not much that is quite like uh, sitting out on a deck uh, alongside an ocean at night. I think in Oklahoma, you get the ocean about as much as you get oh, that lasagna. Oh, we love the ocean here. Yeah. <laughs> Remember, I, I said, one of the reasons I moved out here is we have citizen position. <laughs> that was a trade-off. I had to trade-off the Inner Harbor and uh, and and the breakers and all that for uh, uh, citizen petition. <laughs> what sound do you hate? Um, well, yeah, I would say traffic. Um Living in Washington D.C. or near Washington D.C. for 25 years, that is just a horrible daily sound. What is your favorite food indulgence? Well, now that I'm fully ketogenic and I'm on the keto diet, uh, I'm going to say a wagyu beef, well cooked. But not well done. Not well done. No, no, no. I've learned my lesson. Well cooked uh, with some nice thyme and rosemary and butter and garlic and just seared perfectly. Um, that sounds good. I may get that tonight. You have mentioned a couple of books. I mentioned one. Um, and, and there is no shortage of content to read. But. Right. Do you have one or two book recommendations for people who are saying, you know, this is interesting. I want to learn more about this. Yes, I do. And a dear friend of mine edited a book titled Rethinking the American Union for the 21st Century. Professor Don Livingston uh, from, do you know Don? I I, I know of uh, him. I've, I've got one of his stuff up here, but I haven't met he him. He is a mentor of mine, and Don has played a huge role in my thinking skills, developing them. And so his book, Rethinking the American Century for the 20th, Rethinking the American Union for the 21st Century, to me, uh, is a is just a must read for the beginner in thinking about why do we do what we do, and what can we do juxtaposed with what we do now. Um, and Don, it's a impeccable work. I think Brian McClanahan, in a, in, in a way that he, I need to tell Brian someday, dramatically impacted my thinking on the president, office of the presidency. Um, in his book, I think it's titled The Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America and the Others That Tried to Save Her or something. Or, or, yeah, I think it was the four who tried yeah, to save her. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and in that, you know, because it, it's we live with this view that the president's, the office of the president has largely been filled by um, men who meant to do well and did well in some cases. 
And then Brian's book on that really just kind of shreds all the presidents. And you realize a lot of them were just sociopaths. They're just, they just found their way into that office. And Brian does a great job. In fact, he's probably the first one that exposed me and helped me understand the Judiciary Act of 1789 and how that was kind of the prima facie evidence that the thing that they created in Philadelphia came off the tracks immediately. Um, you know, 10 months later, they're already starting to roll the states. So um, I would say those, both of those books would be eye-opening books for any of your listeners. Fabulous. All right. Well, I'm going to put links to those and they can go find the other ones. Can I throw in one more? Uh, uh, can I throw in one more with, I mean, it's just an essay. Absolutely. Uh, uh, of course. Roth, Rothbard's The um, uh, Anatomy of the State. Just everybody yeah. has to read that. Every you just it's, it's short, it's not long, but you'll walk away understanding the very discussion we've had tonight about why the state is evil. We got to get rid of it. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's a good book. I've I've talked about it a couple of times. Very good. Well, I will put those on the show notes page. Oh, and also, is there a way people can contact you? You mentioned Facebook. Uh, you know, I that's all I have. Uh, I don't do a lot of self promotion stuff. Um, I, okay. I just have my community, and they can contact me through the messenger there anytime they'd like. All right. Well, I will put your Facebook page also on the show notes page, which is going to be episode uh, 146. So that will be culinarylibertarian.com slash 146. Slash 146. People know that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for well, your time this you. afternoon. And uh, enjoy your garden out there. Yes. And you know what? I'm actually growing my garden. I, I make my own salsa, and so I've got all of my uh, herbs growing and my tomatoes growing, nice. and I give it to my community. And, and I live in a community of about 140 homes, and a lot of them are Sweet. looking forward to me uh, getting the salsa going here soon. So. Uh, well, I bet. That sounds like a great thing. That's wonderful. Great. Well, thank you, brother. Thank you for it. All right. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right, folks. That's going to do it. I mentioned I would add links to the books Mark suggested, and mostly, that's so. The book Rethinking the American Union for the 21st Century is only offered as a fulfillment by Amazon book, so I'm not going to add that link. The Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America is available and is also available as an Audible book. If you don't have Audible but want to try it out, you can join, download the Nine Presidents book, quit the program within the 30-day trial period, and keep the book. You can sign up for Audible on the show notes page and get your book that way. The link for Anatomy of the State leads to the Mises.org webpage where you can download that book in PDF form for free. While you're on the Mises site, take a look around. It is an excellent resource for liberty and freedom information and articles, more books, podcasts. Just get a drink and stay a while. Please share this episode on your social media feeds. Also, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. If you appreciate the work I'm doing, I would appreciate your support at culinarylibertarian.com support. You can purchase a coffee mug or donate through Patreon or PayPal. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon.
Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.